This evening's topic was first recorded in 2010, just as we were trying to recover from the 2008 financial meltdown. Already, we've had over 3 million workers added to the unemployment rolls. I think you'll find this 2010 discussion on unemployment very relevant to our current time. My guests were Dr. Thomas Cottle. In this kind of downturn that we have now, as with the Great Depression, one of the things that makes us look and stand at attention, it's starting to hit the middle and upper middle class family. The person earning $120,000, he or she is unemployed. Fred Jackson? We've had an attitude over the years that this is a good life. Unemployment's not going to happen to me. I'm going to go borrow some money. I'm going to build me a new house. I'm going to buy me a new car. All of a sudden, we find out the economy's not in good shape and we're being laid off. And Andrea Lister? I think that a lot of young people are seeing that this there is no short-term fix. That They are seeing that it, you need to be preparing for this to last a while. We'll begin right after the news. From KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Phil Marriage, and this is Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Now in our 20th year on the air, and we remain the only program on radio today dedicated to the preservation of comparative generational thought. So let me welcome you to the crossroads of history. Our program this evening is a rebroadcast of one of our 2010 topics. Why, you ask? For at least a couple of months, I do not want to ask my guests to be here in our small but nice studio while we are trying to consider social distancing in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. So much has happened in just the short time past that all our lives have been upended. In the history of our program over the last 20 years, we've covered more than 270 topics, all from generational perspectives. From that archive, we've often discussed what turns out to be current-day imperatives, so we can meld those earlier thoughts and perspectives with our current time. This evening's topic was first recorded in January of 2010, just as we were trying to recover from the 2008 financial meltdown. Already we've had over 3 million workers added to the unemployment rolls. I think you'll find this 2010 discussion on unemployment very relevant to our current time. Here then is our 2010 program on unemployment yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Welcome to another 2010 edition of Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. I'm Phil Marriage, and our topic this evening is unemployment. In this economy, many of us have either lost work ourselves or we know someone who has, or we're concerned that we might lose our jobs. And this isn't the first time or the last time unemployment will become such an important issue. We've all heard about the bread lines during the Depression, and each generation experiences downturns. But this time, our younger generation may have long-term effects on their employment futures. And that's what we want to talk about this evening I have three terrific guests with me here. Joining us from Boston, Massachusetts, is uh, Dr. Tom J. Cottle. He's a professor of education in there at Boston University. He's author of several books. He's on. Uh, he's been on several radio programs and TV programs. The book we kind of want to focus on that he's written tonight, anyway, is "Hardest Times: The Trauma of Long-Term Employment." So, Tom Cottle, welcome to our program here today. Thank you, Phil. And then our middle generation guest is joining us from Malvern, Arkansas. He's uh, Fred Jackson. He's been with the Arkansas Department of Workforce for nearly 40 years now. Uh, started when he was pretty young there, and he's the Area Operations Chief over Pine Bluff, Monticello, El Dorado, Camden, and Magnolia. So, Fred Jackson, welcome to our program. Glad to be here. And then joining us from Fayetteville, speaking from the younger generation, is Andrea Lister. She's with the Arkansas uh, Job Corps. She's an admissions counselor there. She's also one of the persons that helps career placement, and she's been with the Arkansas Job Corps organization for about five years. Andrea, thanks for being with us here today. 
Good afternoon. Let me start with you first, uh, Tom Cottle, and uh, take us to a time that I guess many of us think of when we think about our grandparents and great-grandparents who who came through the Depression era. We hear sometimes from the very older people in our older generation their stories about the Depression and everything, but what was the nature of unemployment from that period of time, and what can you tell us a a little bit of of, about that older generation perspective on unemployment then when they were young? Well, I have to tell you, I'm not really sure, Phil, that the perspective is all that different as you go over the decades. The times that you earmark, for example, the Great Depression or this period right now and other downturns in the 70s and the 80s, is when it hits the media and when it becomes, let's say, really catastrophic, terribly severe. But there is an ongoing unemployment rate that hovers always at 4, 5, 6%. That's the official rate in America. And if you want to know what it really is, you're probably closer to doubling it because the, the numbers are so inaccurate. And typically for African Americans, you double it again. So it's not until an enormous number of unemployed people come to the attention of the media that we consider it really momentous as it is now. But the fact of the matter is, and I hope I'm answering your question, there is a steady rate of unemployed men and women and young people in this country. There always has been. And as a final note, that what I would say, maybe to stir up a a hornet's nest, I really am furious with those economists who say, well, you know, in the kind of capitalism that we live in, there always has to be unemployment. Well, if there always has to be unemployment, how about those people who claim that? Let them be unemployed and see what it's like. (laughs) Sounds like a plan to me. (laughs) There's always an expectation on the part of theorists that there will be unemployment. The American economy, quote, and I'm saying this not with a tongue-in-cheek, but with real kind of irony and bitterness, there always has to be some population, subpopulation, that remains unemployed. When you look back, at the, not even at the Great Depression, but you look back in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, and you see horrible crimes that were committed, not the famous crimes, the horrible crimes or the, uh, or the alcoholism, and you read in the newspapers, you'll always see a Mr. Jones who was unemployed for 10 years was found dead, or he murdered somebody, or that's what you see. It's this unobtrusive phenomenon until it really becomes so massive, everybody looks at it. But if you go through the history of this country, You see unemployment, systemic unemployment, the same classes of people, the same populations of people being unemployed. It's always been there. Now, one final thought. In this kind of downturn that we have now, as with the Great Depression, I think, Phil, this is what you're probably going after, one of the things that makes us look and stand at attention to this unemployment thing, it's starting to hit the middle and upper middle class families. The person earning sixty, eighty, one hundred twenty thousand dollars, he or she is unemployed, or the massive layoffs on Wall Street of a year or two ago. That's when the newspapers really, really fill their columns with the seriousness of unemployment. So I'm, I'm taking. I don't mean to sound like a Marxist, but I'm saying it's not until the affluent really start suffering that the whole culture kind of rattles with the repercussions of unemployment. Until that time, the poor, the working poor, and the, uh, and, the, and the working classes that are unemployed, 
they know what's been going on. They've been experiencing it for, for, for centuries. There was unemployment before Wall Street collapsed. There's always been unemployment, 4, 5, 6%. And as I say, if you want to know the official figures, you've got to double it, not because the government is nefarious, but because the way we collect data on unemployment is so imprecise. Keep in mind that one of the ways we find out about who's unemployed is we telephone them. Well, when you're unemployed, one of the first things you do is you disconnect your phone. <laughs> yeah. You had a phone to begin with. So how do we know? Or we, or we have people volunteer to walk in certain areas and knock on a door and say, hi, how many people live here and how many people are, are working? That's not done much anymore. So I would say, as I've said now twice, I would double the number to know what has been, what's the unemployment rate. And I guarantee you there was 8 to 10% unemployment, at least minimally in the United States, before, before the crash. Well, Fred Jackson, coming from your perspective and in dealing with the work that you have for over this number of years, do you kind of see that the same way, or, or what's your take on it? Well, somewhat, but the Great Depression and the collapse in the 30s that we had uh, really uh, made a mark on that generation. I think it made that group more conservative. I think it made them pay more attention to their finances. And then we come along with, with my age group that didn't suffer through that, and, and, and we come along with a li little different uh, outlook on life. It seems that... Uh, you know, no stress growing up, not too much stress now until it gets to the point where our home, our family is affected, you know. We've kind of had an attitude over the years that this is a good life, unemployment's not going to happen to me, I'm going to go borrow some money, I'm going to build me a new house, I'm going to buy me a new car. All of a sudden, we find out the economy's not in good shape and we're being laid off. We're in shock somewhat individually, and, and I'm trying to speak to it from the individual point of perspective rather than from the a general state of the nation perspective, because I deal with people one at a time, you know, as they come through our businesses. And, but really, the, the middle generation was completely unprepared for the layoffs that we've had in this recession. It seems that we've got a group of folks now that not only don't have a job, they, that they need retraining. They don't have the skills to, uh, to continue in the economy as it, as it is now. I think our generation, unlike the old generation, we, we tended to get the recessions that occurred in the 1980s. Even if it happened to us, I think the economy has bounced back. We've, in some ways, uh, a lot of the, the middle generation has done better. But like Tom said there, there's a lot of low-income people and underemployed people there that aren't doing well. But there's also a lot of people that have uh, really advanced their, their, their level of living, and we're doing well, you know. I remember when I entered the workforce, which would have been in the early 70s, I guess. I'd just gotten out of college, and I, my expectation then was I would never face a layoff or never face unemployment. It just seemed like my parents, through the time I was growing up, everything seemed to be okay. Unemployment was something that, as you talk about, Tom Cottle, just really wasn't there. I'm kind of wondering, uh, Andrea Lister, in that younger generation, you guys are growing up in a different time, a lot of the younger people entering the force at, in their early 20s, they must be seeing this entirely different. I would definitely have to say that it, this is a spoiled generation, if I had to sum it up, because we have so many parents that did go through uh, some of the, the 80s, the 70s and the 80s, and had parents that had, you know, gone through some of the other recessions and um, major layoffs and Wall Street and that sort of, I can even say for myself, um, you know, our parents were saying, I'm going to give my child everything that I didn't have. And so 
you have a lot of, you know, young people who don't know what it is to work at 15 and 16 and try to get part-time jobs after school or work fast food or just to see what it's like and to try to start getting that understanding of managing money just on a small basis so that whenever you do get in the workforce, you have an idea of what that's about. And I think that it's made for a bit of a jam because, like Freddie mentioned, we have all of those people who are now having to be retrained in some of those practical fields and some of those hands-on skills and maybe not able to um, keep those corporate jobs because of cutbacks and layoffs. And so there's kind of a a jam. You know, you've got us coming in and and them coming in from the other side, and and it, it is, it's causing chaos. And from what I can see from my field and the program that I work with, there's been a huge push for people going back to school and getting back in education and getting practical skills and, you know, just being in and out of the workforce and seeing the kind of lines that are formed, people waiting to try to get unemployment and benefits, you know, they've all of these, the Reinvestment Act and all of this, there's such a huge push for education because they're starting to realize that you can't get a job with a GED or a high school diploma. So I think the biggest thing with the young people is that they're seeing that Maybe my education is a little bit more important. Maybe I need to try to wait this out and and go back to school or pursue a second degree or finish that minor or get some practical training because it's not a life of luxury anymore. It's That time's kind of gone, and, and we are. We're spoiled. We have to take a short break. We are hearing our 2010 program on unemployment with my guests Dr. Thomas Cottle, Fred Jackson, and Andrea Lister. We'll be right back. If you're just joining the program, this is a rebroadcast of our 2010 program on unemployment. My guests were Dr. Thomas Cottle, Fred Jackson, and Andrea Lister. Let's get back to the discussion. Andrea, do you guys in that younger generation, do you kind of take on the expectation, as we talked about in that uh, the older generation, that they kind of looked at life that it was going to be tough for a while, they're going to have to endure it. Is that something that the younger generation is is preparing for, is is more of a long-term unemployment picture? I think that on the advice of our parents and, and older people around us, I think that a lot of young people are seeing that this there is no short-term fix. And I think that they are seeing that it, you need to be preparing for this to last a while. So whatever you need to do to wait it out, that's probably what you should do because of past experiences, what they went through, what they know that their parents what went through, what they experienced as children. They're seeing that there is no quick fix. So, yes, you need to be preparing to wait this out, two, three, four, maybe even five years. So whatever you're doing that's sustaining you right now, you need to stretch it out. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. that's what I'm seeing. Well, Tom Cottle, coming back to that older perspective, looking at the time frame of unemployment, when the older generation was actually in their their prime of working, did they see unemployment as long-term unemployment or short-term? Or how, how did they kind of look at the scene of unemployment? I can't speak about the older generation, Phil, without saying there's the older generation who were very poor, there's an older generation who were working class, there was an older generation that was middle class, and there was an older generation that was affluent. And I think both Fred and Andrea have hit the nail right on the head, that there are certain groups of people who grew up feeling, what will be the problem? I don't know what unemployment is. It hasn't hit our family. And things are going to be fine. There was a population of people that grew up that are in their now they're in their 70s, their 80s, their 90s, who said, "Are you telling me I should be surprised by unemployment? I saw my father go through unemployment. I saw my brother go through unemployment. I saw my mother go through unemployment. I'm not surprised." Here is a statistic about you know the so-called older generation. The longer you stay in school, just as Andrea was saying, the more years of formal education you have, 
the greater is the likelihood that you will have a better job, described as happier in your work and making more money. That's the good news. The bad news, which the older generation has found out, people particularly now in their 50s and their 60s, once out of a job, when you're in your 50s and 60s, God help you in your 70s, mm. and you're still working, the chances are not that great that you will find a job that is, A, as satisfying and pays as much as the job you lost. So you want to say to kids, for goodness sake, stay in school. Mm. What you don't want to tell them, though, the dirty, dark secret is, once you lose your job in, the, in your 40s, 50s, certainly in the 50s, in the 60s, that so-called older generation, you're going to have a lot of trouble getting back in where you left. One of the things that I've seen, too, because I actually get a lot of calls from that specific age group saying, is there any way that I can get into your program? Is there, you know, can I get a, a, you know, a waiver? I, you know, I, I graduated from high school, and that's all I have. And I think it seems to me that there was a period, and I would say early 70s to early mid-80s, when I don't think that there was much of a, of, um, a push or um, a recognition put on staying in school, finishing degrees, completing, because there were so many jobs that said, just finish high school, we'll train you to do what we want you to do. There was not that importance placed on that. So then those same people that said, okay, well, I'm going to forego college, or I'm going to go ahead and go to the military with just a GED, you know, I'm just going to finish high school, are now losing their jobs, those corporate jobs that paid very, very well, and they have no practical skills because they went into the workforce in a very specialized field and now they they don't have that marketability because they didn't finish school because they didn't have to finish school so it puts them at a huge disadvantage now trying to enter the workforce again after 20 25 30 years in the workforce doing a very specialized skill what other time would be better than now while they're unemployed than to be out trying to improve those skills, to Definitely. improve their educational level. It doesn't take that much time to to do job search. I mean, you can only do so much job search, right. but the rest of the time should be devoted to improving yourself, getting ready for that new job. So there are all kinds of scholarships and grants and programs, uh, Workforce Incentive Act programs and training out there that uh, is uh, uh, that are available for, for clients that meet certain eligibility criteria, including the Job Corps, the, the program that Andrea is uh, working with. Now's the time. While they're doing nothing else productive, uh, improve themselves and get ready for the new market that's coming later. Fred, you're talking about, I think, uh, one of the areas of, of unemployment I wanted to talk about, and that is the, the support that's there for those who are. Let me take that back to you, Tom Cottle. What did the older generation expect in the way of support when they did become unemployed? Some had programs. Some had government programs. Some had local and community programs good people that were working with them, whether they are outsourcing or helping them find jobs. I don't think it's anything as we have today. One of the phenomena that you had in those days, which you still have now, and I, I wish I knew the numbers, is the phenomenon of the so-called discouraged worker. And those are the men and women that just simply give up looking for work. Uh, Fred has a good point. If you can support yourself, now's a tremendous time to uh, retool and come back in a whole new way with a whole new preparation for the market. In the old days, and I think it persists, quite frankly, there are people who after six, nine months disappear off the so-called rolls 
They disappear off the unemployment rolls. They disappear off the welfare rolls. God only knows what these people are doing, how they're living, where they're scrounging a living, and how they're making their money. So in the old days, there were programs of support. There was job retraining programs in most communities, although sociologists typically say, Phil, that a lot of those programs were nowhere near as successful as the kind of programs that Fred and Andrea are working in now. Well, Fred, you, you, you kind of started us on that. So tell us uh, what people in that middle generation can expect for support. Are they really going to go out? Do they have faith that they can be retrained? Some of them uh, are reluctant, but it's us folks who work inside the program. We have responsibility of making sure that they understand what's available to them and in offering them the encouragement. And we have an opportunity to see most of them because most of them come through our offices applying for unemployment insurance benefits. Mm -hmm. And uh, once they apply for unemployment insurance benefits, they're usually attached to us now through up to 26 weeks in regular benefits and then up through two additional federal extensions, emergency unemployment benefits after that. And, of course, that money is there coming in, and they can be in school and learning another trade at the same time they're drawing unemployment insurance benefits and be exempted from job search and not have to look for other work or seek other work during that time if they're in approved training in, 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 a, in one of our approved training programs. There are other things. The first impact here that we have to keep them moving on and climb with income is, of course, regular benefits and extended benefits. Then in training, we have the Workforce Investment Act that provides training for people, dislocated workers who are off to, due to no fault of their own. We have a TANF program that provides assistance to needy families who have small children. We have trade adjustment assistance programs that offer training to people who lost their jobs due to foreign competition, foreign imports. A company moved to Mexico, for example. Uh, of course, we have other things nowadays like energy assistance, uh, home weatherization, food stamp programs, federal tax incentive programs, and a multitude of programs that uh, are helpful to these people. But that still doesn't take care of the fact that they have a home that they've bought and two cars that they're paying for and a kid in college. And, uh, we can do what we can do, but still, as we discussed a while ago, it is a bad time, a desperate time for these people, and it may be only a 10% unemployment rate in the nation or 7.4% in Arkansas, believe it or not, whether you accept that as a fact or not, but still, if you're one of that group, it's the most important thing on your mind at any given time. Fred, you mentioned the word desperate, so I'm going to take that word back to you, uh, Tom Cottle. I'm, I'm just imagining some of the older people that might be listening to the program, someone in their late 70s, early 80s, somewhere there, and that when they hear the word desperate, didn't they live in a much more desperate time of unemployment where there wasn't the support that was there? It's hard for me to say that they lived in a, quote, more desperate time. They lived in a desperate time. But I think Fred's absolutely right. When you don't have a job, you are desperate. You're not thinking about the 20s mm -hmm. or your grandfather or somebody else. They were really desperate people. I think Fred's making a very good point. There are more people available now than ever were before to support these people who are unemployed. The net's broader, the net's thicker, the net's richer. But this is a desperate measure. Let's keep in mind that unemployment kills. It's not a melodramatic term. There is an enormous amount of evidence that it is a trauma to people. It is a deep wound. It hurts their soul. 
It, it hurts their psyche, and obviously it begins to erode their physical well-being, if, uh, just, just in, in the area of nutrition. Uh, it is a desperate time. The book that I wrote, Hardest Times, was filled with accounts of the, of the worst-case scenarios where people did dastardly things, horrendous things, because they were so desperate and felt their lives were over. You ask a man or a woman, what do you do? How do you do? What do you do? It's very difficult to say, I don't do anything, I don't work, I don't have a job. So it, it was desperate in the 20s and in the 30s and in the 40s. It's desperate for the people going through these so-called hardest times. There might have been more of a higher percentage at one period than, than another period. Right now the percentages are high. Fred is absolutely right. Whether the number is 2%, 8%, 15%, or 20%, if I'm that man or that woman who is struggling, I may be very desperate. I may be very frightened. One quick interesting point. You begin to see psychiatric and physical symptomatology appear in family members who are told that the main breadwinner may lose his or her job. No job loss, just the mere threat of it causes within two weeks physical and psychiatric symptoms. This has been documented. That's how severe this situation is. Well, Andrea Lister, uh, those in that younger generation, are they feeling any senses of what Tom is talking about or Fred's talking about? Is there any desperation that you're seeing in that younger group at all? I do, and, and a lot of it is because of exactly what he was just saying, that, that desperation, because we have historically depended on our parents as ATMs. So when we go to them and we need, you know, Mom, I have an extra class, I need a book, or my transmission went out on my car that my parents paid cash for when I was 16, <laughs> that whole reality of not really having to work. I mean, our parents saying, I didn't have it, and I'm going to give my child everything that I didn't have, and then that just that a kind of sense of entitlement also almost. You know, now we're in college and we're just out of college and trying to find a job or just found a job and haven't quite gotten on our feet. It's difficult because you've been able to go to them and they've given it to you almost on demand. So now asking for those things or going home and foreclosure is an issue or moving down, you know, changing the lifestyle because you just can't support it anymore. I mean, I think it is traumatic, especially if that's all you've seen your whole life, your parents doing well, and now all of a sudden there's this huge shift. Sweetheart, you might have to get a job. We don't even know what that's about. Work fast food or get a paper route? Like, we don't even understand that because we've not had to do that. And so you need to stay in school. You need to finish what you started because it's hard. And those jobs that may have been available to us for those part-time gigs to work, at, you know, when we got out of school or in lieu of while we were at home living with parents trying to find career-type jobs are really kind of not available because those people who lost those corporate jobs are now forced back into the workforce at a much lower standard. So I think it's traumatizing for the whole family and just the realization that we may have to go to work a little sooner than we anticipated. So, Are you talking about a, a group of people, probably this is true of any generation really, but when you've had it pretty good for a long time and then all of a sudden you see that the jobs are falling apart, that you have a sense that, well, I'm going to wait because somebody's going to take care of me. Does unemployment put fear in that younger person that they really react to it by saying, oh, well, I'm not going to worry about it because somebody's always been there to support Support me. I think that kind of goes along with which of those groups you fall into, like mm -hmm. uh, Tom. As he was saying, there's you know there's been several different classes that have experienced that 
unemployment and those recessions and those moments of desperation. Honestly, I think it depends on which of those groups you fall into. I believe that some of the lower class, their parents may have known what it was about to work in high school and work through school and, and have part-time jobs. And so kind of maybe, you know, hinting at their children that this, you need to know how to do this. You may have to do this at some point. So you may, you need to prepare yourself. That this is always a possibility. Don't ever get too comfortable where you believe that someone's going to catch you if, if things go wrong. But then you have some of those upper class and, and this is, there's a huge disparity. And, and I can definitely speak for this in, in Northwest Arkansas. There is a huge disparity, you know, where there are a lot of rich, there are a lot of poor. And, and you definitely see that in this area. Those people that fall into those upper classes, they don't even understand what that's about. And it, and it is more of a panic for them. I don't think they sit back and wait. I think it's, it's a panic. Like, which direction do I go? Like, you know, just a tizzy. Do I do military? Do I do college? Do I, you know, they just really don't know what direction to turn because their parents are are panicking. Their parents are desperate. And so, I mean, I don't know. I I can't really tell you which direction they turn or or what their go-to plan is because I don't think they've ever had to have a plan. So it's just kind of a Mm -hmm. scrambling trying to figure out something where you have those four class that say, well, if I need to work at McDonald's for a few months to help make ends meet, or if I need to get a job at the pizza place, or if I need to get a paper route, it's not that big of a deal. You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, a little bit more accepting of some of those, you know, working class jobs just to just make ends meet. Tom and Cottle and that older generation, when they were entering the force, did they just say, I'm going to take a job? They weren't that picky about it? Uh, there are some people that are picky. Typically, affluent people are going to be more picky. They feel, quote, entitled. They feel, quote, that they deserve it. Uh, They went to college, let's just say, and they say, why would I want to work in a pizza parlor? If I can't get the kind of job I want, I won't work at all. I don't mean to be too stereotypic about it. Those who are desperate for jobs say, uh, beggars can't be choosy. Mm -hmm. I've got to take what is available to me. Let's keep something in mind. Whether, what, whatever age or whatever social class, we are all the products of luck, good and bad. <laughs> yeah. uh, as John Rawls, the great philosopher, said, no one deserves anything. They don't deserve the good that's happened to them. They don't deserve the bad that's happened to them. And the reason that they don't deserve the good that's happened to them, even with all the hard work that people put in, is because sheer fate made you the child of your parents and put you, launched you in the society at a particular spot. So some people grew up of an older generation or of a younger generation knowing full well that they're, of course, we're going to go to college and there'd be no problem about financing college. Right. Other people grew up thinking, oh, college is going to be a stretch. And another group of people grew up thinking, I don't, I can't even think seriously about college. There's no way that I could get in. If I did get in, there's no way that I could pay for it, even with extraordinary programs. So I think that there are people in this culture who feel entitled. They have been told this is the way it is. Work hard and you will do fine. And a lot of people are stunned to find that they've worked very, very hard, met all the expectations, jumped through all the hoops, and the society says, sorry, no job. Go see Fred. Go see Andrea. Uh, You're going to have to be retrained. And they are aghast at this. It is desperately shocking. So the older generation, some went absolutely assuming there would be work, and others prayed that there would be work. You know, uh, when you talk about the older generation, I think about my father who immigrated to this country. And people didn't come to this country because they thought the streets were lined with gold. 
they came to this country because no matter what America offered them, it had to be better than what was being offered in their homeland. And a lot of them were disappointed, and many of them were not. Many of them found the great opportunities in the United States. And many of us who were born here grew up feeling, well, the streets aren't necessarily lined with gold, but I'm going to make out just fine. And other people are growing up in this country saying, uh, where are these streets with the gold? Yeah. I, I want to see these gold streets. <laughs> We're talking about unemployment here today on Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. My guests are speaking from the older generation perspective. That last voice you heard was Tom Cottle, a professor of education there at Boston University, the author of the, one of the uh, one of his many books, Hardest Times, The Trauma of Long-Term Unemployment, which, by the way, I'll have a notation on that in our archive on our website at uh, yttshow.org. Our middle generation guest joining us from Malvern is Fred Jackson. He's been with the Arkansas Department of Workforce for many, many years. He's their operations chief over several cities there in central Arkansas. And our younger generation guest joining us from Fayetteville is Andrea Lister. She's the one of the admission counselors there at Job Corps. Our last break is coming up, so stay with us for more of our 2010 rebroadcast of Unemployment. If you're just joining the program, this is a rebroadcast of our 2010 program on unemployment. My guests were Dr. Thomas Cottle, Fred Jackson, and Andrea Lister. I hope you are impressed with the relevance of this now 10-year-old discussion as it relates to our situation today. Let's get back. Getting back to the topic of unemployment from the male-female point of view, uh, Tom Cottle, let me talk to you about a time in our society, that period of time when unemployment hit a family where there was only one wage earner. I don't know that there's ever been a time that women didn't, quote, work. Women have always worked. Right. I love you, Tom. Uh, Tom <laughs> I mean, give me a break. You know, this woman doesn't work. She's just raising four children, taking care of absolutely everything. And women worked to support their families. We don't talk about those women 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, but there were single-parent families. There were women that were scrounging, who were doing the work to raise the money to support their husbands or, in the absence of a man, to raise their family. We've always had women working outside the home trying to earn money. Nowadays, we have, hopefully in a more equitable culture, both genders working, although, as you know, even in those uh, families where both man and woman work outside the home, forgive me for being as heterosexual bias here, but when man and woman, because you asked about women, when man and woman work outside the home, women still do the majority of work inside the house. So they, they still work harder than as hard as they've ever worked. The problem that we have now is the single-parent family, typically, when it's headed by a woman, is usually code word for poor. That's one of the great problems. And we also know from Arlie Hochschild's work, the longer you stay in school, the greater likelihood you will not become a teenage mom. And those women who have children early and those women that don't have great sources of financial resources, they're going to be looking at unemployment as one of the scariest prospects that will ever face them. How will they put meals on the table? How will they pay for medical care, which is an appropriate topic right now, what's mm -hmm. going on in the United States? And there, yes, there are these social programs, God bless them, whether their head starts with their food stamp programs or whatever, but they're a group that can be absolutely desperate given the circumstances of their lives. I'd like to interject here just uh, from a, an experience that I had here in Fayetteville. Did I misspeak, um, Andrea? Did no, I not at all. Okay. Not at all. I definitely agree. But one of the problems that we're facing in this area is that there are several increasing 
numbers of single parent families that are headed by men. And because so many of these programs have been geared towards helping single mothers, some of these programs are kind of having to revamp the way that they do things. I know of a, a man that that has a child that the mother is is on drugs, and you know he went to go get help, and he couldn't get help. They made him jump through so many hoops. He had to come up with affidavits of paternity, and that he actually was the guardian of the child. And he said, and he asked point blank, "If I was a mother, would you make me do all of this?" And they told him no. And so I think that some of those programs that were in place are going to have to be revisited and maybe, you know, some of the guidelines are going to have to be changed because there are some families out there. I don't know what kind of percentage they represent, but some of those programs are designed to help, but not necessarily everyone. The programs are definitely there, but they just they need to be geared towards everyone, not just the single moms, because a single parent needs help regardless of sex. They, they need all the help they can get. So. Amen. What is the future of unemployment, and especially taking into consideration your, your book on the trauma of long-term unemployment? Are we seeing long-term unemployment as part of our future? You want me to read the future? If I could read the future, I would be out investing <laughs> in the stock market. I think the way capitalism is conceived in this country, there will always be unemployed people. They will come from the lower reaches of the culture because the people in the upper reaches of the culture will get help. What we're seeing now is an erosion of the employment world, even in the classes that creep towards affluence. And I, I think about all those people in the financial world that were laid off. It is not a culture yet that is willing to, to look out for all people. Uh, this is just my bias. My bias says it is not a culture that looks out for the common weal, that looks out for the well-being of somebody else. Uh, it's not a culture where we're trained to say, I really shouldn't have this unless I know that all people are safe and all people have it. That's what's accused of being a socialist or even a communist, et cetera, et cetera. And yet these programs that support people who are unemployed come from people of, that Fred and Andrea work with, come from people of really good will who are looking out for others other than themselves. You know that I'm, as I'm speaking to you now about this, Phil, I'm thinking about a banking industry that's bailed out with your taxes and my taxes and now gives eight-figure bonuses. It is as obscene as any sex on television. There will always be unemployment. Hopefully the rates will go down, and hopefully this country will wrap its head and even more its heart around those people who struggle not because of their personal inadequacies, or transgressions, but because the circumstances overwhelm them and they simply do not have the skills, the training, the experience, the whatever it is, the history, to overcome it. That is the song from the spiritual, we shall overcome. People have to have extraordinary wherewithal, spiritual, intellectual, to quote, overcome. My faith is put in education. That's where I'm banking the hope for the younger generation. I'm just begging schools to, to improve. There's some extraordinary uh, experiment going on in Raleigh, North Carolina, where you see schools no longer segregated. This may be changing. No longer segregated by race or economics. And in those schools, which the password is a teacher could send their children to those schools, could afford to send their children to the schools, and want to send their children to those schools, their public schools, that's where I'm putting my faith in that you worked the full employment state where people's well-being is, is looked out for as opposed to 
eight-figure bonuses from the people of the banking industry who their presidents say, and you can see I'm on a high horse on this one, if we don't pay eight-figure bonuses, we won't get the best people. Well, if those were the best people that brought down the banking industry, let's go for the second best people. <laughs> Before I, I let you go on that topic, though, Tom Cottle, I do want to ask you about older people right now who are facing competition from middle generation people for those scarce jobs that are there right now. How are the older people looking towards the next four or five years uh, well, in terms of jobs? That's, a, that's the important question. That's what I said before. If you lose your job in your 50s and your 60s and your 70s, you better believe that that man or that woman in her 20s. 20s, 30s, and 40s as on your heel. And that has always been, Phil, that has always been, that, that goes back to the 40s and 50s. Sociologists like Morris Janowitz and Bruno Bettelheim study this. It's the person right on your heels that really bugs you. It was the old days when the black man was right on the heels of the white man, and there was terrific animosity towards that black man. Was it racism? Well, maybe it was racism, but it was also that guy that's going to get your job. So now there is real concern in some families, true desperation, because that man who's 58, 62, 68, 71, he knows full well he's not going to get back that job that he had. And as many people in enormous corporations across the country, more enormous number of corporations across the world, why would they hire me at 68,000 when they can bring in a young person with a hell of a lot more energy at 385? Uh, that's why the teachers' union have set up tenure systems as they have, because school systems would say, why would we keep a 60-year-old teacher and pay her $72,500 when we can bring in a kid right out of Boston University, pay her 38000 and she might even have more energy and might be better. Well, Fred Jackson, you guys in that middle generation, you're the ones that are on the heels of the older, but you also have that younger generation coming after your jobs, too. So what what do you think the uh, people in that middle generation raising families, maybe one or two incomes or down to one income, how are they looking at these next few years here? I believe that my generation certainly should have picked up a few things from the older generation. I believe that above all, we're individuals and we're individually responsible for ourselves. The government is here to do these things for us, to provide assistance and, and programs of various types and many, many programs to support us. But the ultimate decision here is ours, uh, whether we educate ourselves, whether we as an older worker stay attuned to what the job requires. Do we stay professional? Do we stay the man that's on top? The man that's on, on top that's doing an excellent job, sometimes it's hard to let go for a company, and, and, and we all need to remember that. We need to continually look to improve ourselves, to improve our ability, our value to the employers that we work for. Because, like you say, somebody younger than us will be on our heels. And that's the type of position that many in my generation are sitting in right now. I think that my generation will think about the unemployment, the recession that we had here, what's happened to the stock market, the CD rates, the banking, and us individually. And we'll have some concerns about what's going to happen to Social Security, retirement accounts, and things in our generation, our retirement years to come. I think we'll probably be a little more conservative with our spending for a while. But as I stated earlier, 
the recessions come and go, and after the recession is over, we'll probably be right back to old habits. Andrea Lister, as you listen to that, yours is that younger generation that will probably go through several more ups and downs over the course of your time on Earth here. What are you guys looking at as the future in terms of unemployment from what we've talked about here today? From what I can see, I think what's going to be important is that we diversify. Not only do we need to be educated, and and I agree wholeheartedly with Tom, education is definitely probably where we need to be putting our money, but not just book learning. We need to have practical, everyday skills. We need to get back to teaching kids how to balance checkbooks, how to run a paper route, how to count change, you know, how to work at Sonic or, or, or Burger King or McDonald's, because you just never know, and you need to be prepared for whatever. I think we just need to get back to a, a scrappy mentality where I will do whatever I have to do to make it, even if that means taking that job that's, a, you know, a little bit of nothing. And I think that it's just going to be a matter of really preparing for any situation and not just preparing ourselves but preparing our kids as well because that's the issue is that all of that sort of learning has just kind of been forgotten or thrown to the wayside for technology and, and all of these high-tech learning and, and all of these kinds of things. So I think it's just going to be important for us to get back to having a firm understanding of what basic skills means, what that actually entails, and just having hands-on learning as well as formal education. I couldn't agree more with what Andrew just said, but I do want to throw in two cents, which is you have an enormous population of young people now in this, in this country who are functionally illiterate, and you have a, a, a population of kids who are computer illiterate. And if you want to talk about kids at risk, an illiterate person is at serious risk. If they can't read and they can't manipulate the computer, they're going to be at a profound disadvantage. I, this does not take away with Andrea's good points, but this concerns me too, Phil, mm -hmm. that there are kids coming out with high school diplomas who cannot read a bus ticket. That's right. That's right. And then they come to me. <laughs> and, then, and then they come to you or they come later on, they come to Fred. The homeless shelters are filled with people who are unemployed and or they have some addiction and or they're special needs kids in high school that didn't get the, the support they needed and or they are illiterate in some ways. Where can they go? Who will take them? So we have to think about those people too. I would like to throw in that, and I know that Fred can attest to this, that just so many of the programs that we have, and it would be wonderful if some of our state representatives or government officials were listening, but that some of these programs really looking at where we stand right now and the fact that the recession, you know, there really just kind of doesn't seem to be a definite end. We're going to have to revamp some of these programs, and we're going to have to open up the window of opportunity for some of these people because Job Corps has so much to offer, but it's only for 16 to 24. So what about those people who have a household to, to take care of? Or what about those people who need to be at home? They can't live at a campus or, or commute an hour away. We're, we're going to have to open up some of these government programs that have been historically geared towards a specific age group or a specific socioeconomic group. They're just going to have to broaden the spectrum for who they allow to take advantage of some of these programs. I think we have the programs we need, but we just have not opened up the doors for all of the people that need the programs at this time. Mm -hmm. I would want to reiterate something that Fred said, which I think is very profound, is often missed, and that is unemployment is a story of policy, and it's a story of programs, it's a story of retooling. 
But at bottom, it's, it's the uncommon story of so-called common people. It's the work of Studs Terkel. It's that man. Yeah. It's that woman. Yeah. It's that boy. It's that girl. It's that family. One by one, they go through their lives uh, capable of what they're capable of, not capable of what they're not yet capable of. And what I hear too often in the world, both in terms of the media at times, though not so much, but certainly in government, that human life is masked or hidden or concealed by all kinds of political debates. And in the health debate right now, yes, we're going to need extraordinary people to wrap their heads and their brains around this, the difficulty of policy, but that one person going into a hospital needs an advocate for him or for her. Otherwise, they may very well die. Who is looking out for that child, that person, that adult, that elderly person? And I wish that unemployment were more often seen in terms of its human perspective rather than just its sociological, economic, or cultural perspective, so that our culture sometimes lose sight of regular individuals as we obsess over celebrities. You know, Tom, you, you remind me of, of something that, that I kind of want to throw in at the, here at the end of the program. And those of you listening, if you have not in your life ever experienced the day somebody comes up to you or you hear on the news that your job is going to be gone, that is probably one of the more fearful times of your life. I, I've experienced it myself uh, years ago, ago, and it was very scary to think that, you know, the boss has come around saying, hey, we're going to have to let a bunch of you guys go. Uh, it's scary. I, I have to confess, when I was fired once, I drove home and I said to myself, I'm going to be okay. I have a lot of resources. I'm going to be okay. And with that, forgive me, I vomited all over the front seat of the car. <laughs> oh, I, was so, I was so viscerally upset. I had literally been, uh, symbolic, figuratively, been kicked in the stomach. And I'm one of the lucky, lucky people in this world because of who my mother and father were and where they launched me. But I have, unfortunately, met a lot of men and women who no longer are with us, and I think I would blame unemployment as the reason for their death. One thing I'd like to throw in is I am so excited about this census and what it possibly can mean, because I think that for once, it, it, you know, maybe not all of it, maybe not everything, but maybe some of the things that are going unseen will be brought to light because there's so many people that have not been recognized, so many cultural groups, and just maybe, I'm just crossing my fingers and praying that they actually get recognized and start to open their eyes and see that the unemployment rate is nowhere near 10%. So let's just hold out hope for this census. Folks, we've been talking about unemployment here today on Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, and I can only tell you if you're listening to the half-hour version of the program, there is tons more available to you at the podcast, so I encourage you to go to yttshow.org, download the podcast. If you're a person uh, that's facing unemployment or you've gone through it or your kids are going through it, this is a discussion that you might want to share with them. I've had a great time talking with my guests. Speaking from the older generation and joining us from Boston, Massachusetts, has been uh, Thomas Cottle. He's a professor of education there at Boston University, author of many books. He's been on TV on many different radio programs over the years. His uh, book that we were focusing on today is Hardest Times, The Trauma of Long-Term Unemployment, and I will have that uh, information on our website. Uh, Tom Cottle, so glad you were with us here today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks to you as well as to Fred and Andrea. And then speaking from that middle generation, joining us from Malvern has been Fred Jackson. He's with the Arkansas Department of Workforce. He's the area operations chief over there in uh, Pine Bluff, Monticello, El Dorado, Camden, and Magnolia. Uh, Fred Jackson, really glad you were here with us, too. Glad to be here. 
And our younger generation guest joining us from Fayetteville has been Andrea Lister. She's with the Job Corps up there in Fayetteville. She's the admissions counselor. She's also a career placement officer with them. Andrea, speaking from that younger generation, did a great job. Really glad you were with us here today. Thank you so much. I was glad to be on. I hope you've enjoyed this rebroadcast of our 2010 discussion on unemployment. These are very difficult times for all of our generations. Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow is produced for KUAR in partnership with the University of Arkansas Little Rock. Our podcasts are online at KUAR.org and send your suggestions and comments to YTT at KUAR.org. Be sure to join us the first Friday of each month at 7. And thanks for listening.